0: With we'll here my my comrade in arms Mike Sauter, how's it going, Mike?
1: Good, Mike. The uh, I don't know how it feels there in Michigander, but the um, there's something about this time of year. You know, even those people who aren't uh, you know working in the academic academic calendar, I just feel like uh, I'm demanded energy is being demanded of me that I don't feel. You know, it's the dog days of summer, and I've got some allergies, and so every time of uh, every every year this time rolls around, I feel like. I, I should be summing up more energy than I have, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: <laughs> a little lethargy. Lethargy is moving in. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, here, um, you know, I live on a farm. So I'm, at this time of year, I start watching the barn swallow. Yeah, beautiful. My I barn know. is full of them. Sometimes I'll go out there in the morning and over the pasture, I bet 75, maybe 100 birds. And uh, But at this time of the year, I start watching to see when they disappear. Uh-huh. because when they when they leave indicates how early winter will. Happen.
1: Do they so, migrate? You're saying, so I don't, I'm not familiar.
0: Well, they do. And where so are they, they going to go? Two okay. years ago, 2020, uh, they left at the Feast of the Assumption. So they were, the 15th of August, they were gone already, which is strange. Usually they don't leave till the beginning of September. And that year, we had a hard frost uh, the third week, not even the third week in September, which was... Never happened in my entire life, so huh. so I so I pay attention to that these days. And I thought they left the other day, but they did not.
1: So yeah, they're yeah. still here. <clears throat> so anyway, will you write that briefly? Will you write that in a journal of some kind, or you just have a pretty good memory?
0: Oh, and I no, I have a good memory. Of, oh, I have to. But uh, yeah. So last year they didn't leave till about the sixth or seventh of September, and and we had a relatively mild winter.
1: Do you scrape off their muddy nests at that point?
0: Never. Okay. I leave them for to come back next year.
1: I worked for many years at a Trappist Monastery. I'm still very connected. A lot there, of people but, try to get
0: rid of them. I don't.
1: <laughs> yeah, in the spring I had to. You know, we had um I was again a guest house at a Trappist Monastery here in upstate New York, the Abbey of the Genesee. But there were so 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 many nests being built in the spring that I would go out with a broom handle. You know, it's not a fun job, but before the eggs were laid, they'll it seems the day after a nest was built, they're laying know. the eggs. Yep. Yeah. So, because yeah. uh, they would swoop at people, often from New York City, a big part really? of our yeah, <laughs> I, I yeah, yeah, people
0: from New York City too. <laughs> anyway. Yeah.
1: and anyway. so well, good. This all ties into our guest, I think.
0: I I think in some way it will. So today our guest is a, a scholar I have admired for a very long time. You know, Ronald Hutton. Uh, author of many many books and and i'll tell the story of so i was in graduate school i was working my master's degree and i was doing my thesis on the figure of the ass in shakespeare which uh in, so if you know shakespeare at all midsummer night's dream you know the mm-hmm. bottom turns into an ass and then in twelfth night then no one turns into it to an ass uh literally but malvolio is made into an ass. And there's a lot of ass jokes in there, right? Go shake your ears is one of the one of the things they say to Maldolio. And it occurred to me that Shakespeare was was working with something with the the cycle of the year. So it, it had Christian but kind of pagan folk element as well. And I was I was speaking to my advisor who was, was an historian. So it was kind of cool to do a Shakespeare uh, thesis with an historian as my advisor and he was a medievalist and early modernist like Ronald is and he said well you've got to check into Ronald Hutton and this is about 1998 and so right at that time so I bought uh, Ronald's uh, The Rise and Fall of Mary Inc which has rarely left my side since in my scholarly work because Mike as you know so much of what I've written about has been that kind of, you know, that metaxu between uh, what what we could call folk religion or paganism and Christianity, and, and especially, you know, my my doctorate is in early modern English literature, and I just I just dis- I, dis- I discovered through that um, process that my my tutelary spirit is Robert Herrick. <laughs> so, <laughs> So and, and Robert Herrick's poetry, it's all mixed up too. I mean, is, is it Christian? Is it pagan? Is it folk religion? Is it is it Roman pagan? It's all mixed up. And 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 basically, uh, when people ask me what my religious tradition is now, I say well, basically we're uh, we're Catholic neo pagan. <laughs> so so it gives me great pleasure to welcome welcome Ronald Hutton to the podcast. Um, and Ronald uh, besides. The, Rise and Fall of Mary England, he's the author of many, many books. Um, I just have a few written down. The Witch, The Triumph of the Moon, uh, Stations of the Sun, which I bought around the same time I bought The Rise and Fall of Mary England, Uh, and most recently, which this brought, uh, I didn't even know about this one, uh, Ronald's most recent book is Queens of the Wild, which uh, a friend of mine who was actually writes also for In Jesus' Imagination, Jonathan Geltner, sent me the link to it a couple of weeks ago Say, did you know about this book? Because as you you look through the table of contents, I mean, he's got chapters on mother earth, the fairy queen, lady of the night and so forth, the green man. And, uh, you know, which as far as listeners of this podcast and followers of my own work will know, you know, those are all, uh, buzzwords for sociology as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, Ronald, welcome to the show, and I'd like to ask you to start with. I, I, I kind of told you my path into this this kind of material. What was your path into into your your research material? It's simply that I had all these enthusiasms
2: when I was an adolescent, and uh, never let them go. Uh, I discovered to my wonder and amazement and gratitude that once I was appointed to Bristol University, having left Oxford, they assured me that I could teach whatever I liked for the rest of my life, whereas I'd been used to a sister in the older universities, whereby you had to teach the syllabus, whatever your private enthusiasms were. And so I took them at their word, perhaps rather more generously than they'd expect, and ended up (laughs) writing on all the different sins. I love uh, I, I, love I formed I love the idea that middle age should really be a revenge lifestyle in which you get <laughs> to do all the stuff you really want to do between the ages of 13 and 16. That's wonderful. I like yeah. that.
1: There's a lot yeah, of quotable I, stuff in that one sentence, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I had uh
0: yeah, so from so also I, mean, I look back, I was not quite a teenager, I was maybe in my twenties. What I did. I discovered uh through T. S. Eliot's poem The Wasteland, uh his references to uh um his footnotes, I should say, to Jesse Weston's uh from Ritual to Romance and uh to the Golden Bough, which, you know, I said, I gotta better check those books out. So I, you know, investigated that and I was captivated by this these ideas that um that the the celebration of the Christian year, for instance, had much more import and agricultural significance and cosmic significance then then I was raised to believe in the kind of sterile uh, Roman Catholicism of my childhood and it was so it was liberating and then it became a Waldorf feature and it was one, one of the only places you still see people celebrate Niphamus and May Day in the United States anyway so that was liberating um now let me ask you this um so a lot of what you you do has been on uh We could call it a a paganism of the Middle Ages or the the early modern period, but also modern iterations of what we call pagan. And so how would you define pagan? It's a word coined by Christians
2: to indicate uh, the rooted religions. It's literally the religions of Pargus, the Roman imperial unit of local government. In other words, they're the old, the religions, the part of the land and the locality, rather than the new, newly appeared, brash, pick-up-and-carry evangelical Christian. And as an umbrella term for the pre-Christian religions of
0: Europe and the Middle East, it works perfectly well like that. Huh. Yeah, it does. And so so how then, what would you attribute uh the we can call the the, the modern interest in a um, called i mean a popular interest in paganism kind of a, like a renaissance we call paganism to what would you attribute that? to so the fact that ancient paganism along with a
2: lot of stuff that really is not suitable relevant to the modern age contains very real elements that certainly are very well suited to them. I think there are three in particular. One is that uh, there are strong feminist elements. There are goddesses as gods, there are priestesses as priests. Second is it's linked to the idea of an inherent sanctity in nature, which fits very well into the modern emotional reaction, which is wholly justified towards a fresh organic relationship with the natural world at a time when we're in danger of annihilating or at least disturbing it to the point at which large elements disappear. And the third uh, inheritance from the pagan ancient is a disinclination to believe that the divine makes laws or rules for humans, and instead credits humans with the the right, the ability to express themselves, realise their own natures, and find maximum self-fulfillment while doing as little harm to anybody or anything else in the process as possible. And those three things together provide an upswell of energy for modern needs, which is very real. Yeah, and I, It strikes
1: me, it strike. go ahead, but no, it go strikes ahead, me on. just as a little parentheses there, Ronald, is that um, the way you described paganism there too is, you know, if you bring in- this kind of wanting to be, you know, left alone and not bothering other people too much. And nature, you know, you have the makings there of a political coalition we need, you know, that in America, you know, you have, you might say the traditional right would say this kind of like, leave me alone, um, you know, against tyranny and so forth. And the left would maybe be seen as more connected with nature and the natural world. But this, um, I always get teased because I have a fascination. Which grew out of a, a blogger here in the states, a name you might be familiar with. I've seen your names in tandem, but John Michael Greer, who highlighted the character of Johnny Appleseed in in the U.S. as somebody who could really emblematize, and in fact that maybe somebody, um, you know, who could really be a pole star, not only for you know, um, again, kind of a liberty and kind of a do your own thing, but uh, but also um, you know, a kind of a a, a new political realignment,
2: you know. I think that could work in much the same way over here on this side of the Atlantic. Okay, I yeah. also agree that John Michael Greer is a very fine writer, extremely mm-hmm. intelligent person. And something else which... uh Roman imperial style paganism had in common with uh, other ancient paganisms and it would also work quite well for the present world, is most of the time, with some notable exceptions, a generally pluralistic attitude to religion, a belief that anybody was entitled to their own religion, providing it wasn't politically or socially and was loyal to the agreed government, as long as uh, it didn't keep the neighbours alight and didn't break any laws. And (laughs) if you want to make it public, you could go along to the Senate and the Western Roman Empire or to an oracle in the Eastern Roman Empire. And if they looked at your proposal and it seemed viable, you could actually have public temples be eligible for
1: public grants of money and support. That's interesting, you know, because it could I'd have to think about that more because it could, you know, some people are looking at the, you know, the current iteration of the state in the US, you know, and saying that constitutes a religion in and of itself. I'm sure you're aware of that discourse. But um, so, uh, you know, that's what that's one of these creative tensions I think we're facing at this moment in history and that when people want to come down uh, too quickly. On one side, I see it as a bubbling cauldron, to use another pagan image, that during this time, things are falling down Born, but it's certainly one of those dynamic tensions that are very, very alive right now, you know, in the, in the Catholic world, Ronald, you have everybody answering that question, I shouldn't say, everybody, you have huge swaths of the Catholic world answering some of these tensions with a call for a new theocracy, you know, Um, I'm sure you see that in the British Isles too.
2: (laughs) Things things are pretty different over here. I've stressed similarities between our nations, but they're also profound. Uh, One of them being that uh, America is the most religious country in the developed Western world. Uh, That is the nation in the developed Western world in which most people attend some kind of religious service uh, regularly. And uh, the United Kingdom, the Czech Republic, are the two nations in that world in which people do so least frequently. Uh, we, we simply have fewer fundamentalists, not just than the USA, but than most countries. Uh, we're a much more secular society, and religion is much less part of social and public discourse. And so we're, we're naturally less worried about things Often just less conscious than people are in what you might call more normal countries.
0: <laughs> um, Interesting. So now, one of the so um, Ronald, your your work came back into my. I mean, it was it's always been on my radar, and every time I write a book, I, I turn to yours as a resource. But a few years ago, my brother-in-law gave us a set of CD or DVDs <laughs> of the British television show Tudor Monastery Farm. In which you were uh, like an expert. They would bring you in as the expert on uh, festivals and like this. And so I would in was watching with with my two youngest sons, and they're now they're now eleven and thirteen. They were probably nine and ten at the time, and I didn't know anything about the series. And then <laughs> like it's Ronald Hunt. and. And they said, you know that guy. Well, I don't know him. I know his work. I said, well, how come am I not famous like he is? <laughs> they think anybody who's on TV is famous. And you know, I am too famous. But that was, I mean, for my kids, you know. And I can, and I can, and I've seen this book through my whole career, you know, because so much of my own work, you know, skirts that that border between Christianity and paganism. And in fact, my my 21 uh, year old son a couple of years ago no his last year he saw the movie the wicker man in the 60s i think Is it early i 70s? haven't seen it oh well it's basically uh using uh sir james frazier <laughs> oh, okay. movie and there's human sacrifice in it so it's it's very it's it's very uh christian pagan or mostly pagan uh from the middle middle ages and uh my son saw the film. and He said, "Oh, you, Dad, I just saw The Wicker Man." I said, well, "Yeah, what do you think? It's basically our house without the without the human sacrifice, <laughs> which it is. I mean, it really is. it's, it's kind of remind funny.
1: me not to go digging up around your yard when I visit. Right? Kind of nervous about what I'll find.
0: Actually, we, I, as you know, Mike, I live on a Native American burial ground.
1: You do? Yeah. Right. Right.
0: So, yeah, so there's, there's, there's American pagan all over this place over here. Um, so, but my, so my question is, it, what, what I, what my kids thought was inspiring in that, that's, is that it, what it's, it showed to them. I mean, it was very, very similar to the way we live, but it showed to them this way of um, living the year living the the you could call it the Christian or the agricultural cycle or whatever you want to say it and in fact this year uh, when I we live on a small farm when I finally was able to find a source for geese so I brought these geese home in March and the first thing my 13 year old son says now we can have a michaelmas goose which came straight from the series right? yep. <laughs> which was the plan now so I wonder if you could say anything about how these traditions that you have so i mean not only beautifully but in in a, in a very solidly scholarly way um what do they have to say to to uh, a modern people you know you know and i've seen and and i just got on i had a phone call yesterday from some young man who had encountered my blog and he had just read one or two of my books and uh he was like he was on fire he said how can people do this and and so i ronald i i, I would like to know um what how, what you think this this research has to offer to the modern world
1: this might be the central question yeah
0: as with the case of a lot of
2: historical themes ideas images the traditional festival of europe needs redeploying in a context Because pretty well wholesale, they were tied to the farming, to the production of food. And this suited a society in which even in a relatively urbanised nation like England, until about 1850, the vast majority of people lived in the countryside and were directly or indirectly involved in farming and its products. And as late as 1810, that was still over 80%. But by 1910, over 80% of the English population lived in the city and were employed in occupations related to industry, commerce, or services. And that's the way it stayed. And this is more and more the pattern of the world. So what's needed to be done is to redeploy festivals that are really suited to a lost world across most of West, to one in which the year has been redesigned around humanity. So our Our widely observed festivals now are Christmas, which uh, may well be uh, still a way of keeping cheerful and a gloomy time of year, but it's also very family-centered. And then comes New Year, which is often a way in which those who've put up with the family and the children through Christmas get a chance to socialize with friends and let rip in a more adult. And then there's (laughs) Valentine's Day for lovers. There's Mother's Day at different dates and different sides of the Atlantic for mothers. There's Easter for the family again. And then we take off into the summer vacation, in which we turn the traditional way of celebrating a holiday, which is to stay in the community and get the community together to have fun, inside out so that you leave to go somewhere sunnier and strange, more exotic. In the vacation period, and then you come back together again, the community, towards the end, of, uh, the agricultural time, and celebrate Halloween and Guy Fawkes Night in Britain, and then you rev up towards Christmas and the festive season par excellence. So the human. Humanity in its life cycle has replaced the natural in its life cycle at the centre of our season. But we can still take on trappings, ideas, rituals, games from the old agricultural cycle to enliven our human-centred cycle. And also, these rituals can do something much bigger, which is more and more needed in the modern developed world, which is to reconnect with two things from which we're largely cut off by urbanisation and industrialization. And one is the natural, and the other is a sense of organic community, a rooted sense of community. And festivities create community, and they reconnect, they link humans together with each other and with the environment. And those are both precious commodity in an increasingly mobile, unstable, and atomized world. I'm not preaching against them, it gives us freedoms, which exactly suit an old-fashioned small L liberal like me. But there's a price that we've paid, and we're trying to undo some of that damage.
0: Yeah. And Fascinating. Uh, and this is a story I've told before on the podcast, but it's true. So at our farm, we have we celebrate a lot of festivals. We uh, <clears throat> as public festivals, we have May Day and Mickelm. So it's starting off and ending our agricultural cycle farm. And uh, what happened is two years ago when when COVID hit and everything was shut down, two weeks to flatten the curve, and two years to flatten the curve or whatever it was. Um, and so very few people showed up to our our May Day festival and 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 Michaelmas was also, well, it was kind of rainy, so it was sparsely attended. But in 2021, when we did May Day, uh, and people were still under many, you know, COVID restrictions here in Michigan. And so I I told a couple of people, you know, we're going to have this festival again. I I think I only told two or three families in the neighborhood. And so they came, but a friend of my wife said, can I tell a couple of my friends? Sure. 50 people showed up at our festival with children, with, you know, families to celebrate May Day and uh, it happened to be a glorious day. And they they all I mean, spoke to me as how meaningful it was for them to connect with other people on a farm, in nature, you know, and doing you know, something that had both convivial but also a sacred dimension. And I remember, remember at the time just being kind of stunned even though I I already already kind of intuitively knew it, but re- really having this um, confirmation of how important these festivals are and how and I th- I think modern people are starved for it and don't know it. Um, so I mean I, that's that's part of the reason that I'm so interested in your work, but also that that I think what you offer by not only not you're not staying staying locked in the in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, you you let yourself range into the modern. World as well in your scholarship. And I think that's important because it, it, it makes the world whole in a way, or at
1: least yeah, give a little, a little a interjection on you know, some of that is uh, Ronald. I've most of my career has been working with, say, young adults in what's called campus ministry. And um, I've got four children myself. Mike has a heck of a lot more than that. But, um, you know, there's at least in the US, there's a mental health crisis of unimaginable proportions coming out of COVID with that demographic. And so much of it, you know, we were leading into this before COVID and the lockdowns and things. We were leading into, um, you know, still anxiety was ranking so high prior to that. But you get a sense that when you talk to an average young person, and I'm, I'm guessing it's the same in the UK, is that, you know, they look at their day and maybe even their week according to one term and one term only. Was it a productive day? You know, Angela, how are you doing? Well, I had a productive day or an unproductive today you know it's a new insight but that's it's directly connected to this this uh ubiquitous sense of anxiety the younger generations feels so you, you have the whole notion of time right and in church world we often contrast kairos god's time in the greek with uh, um i mean chronos god's time i mean sorry chronos clock time clock time with kairos or kairos you know god's time the time it might take to heal a broken heart uh the time it takes to grieve the loss of a loved one and these more natural rhythms. And I think, you know, we have, we have maybe two ways out of that anxiety producing chronos. And I often refer to this as like killing time, kind of turning that phrase around. How do you kill chronos? Well, one way is, and it's not all bad, you know, this name Eckhart Tolle, there's great insights there is to go into the now, you know, to, to create an awareness of the present moment. So we all know whether we're good at that or not, it has great, um, potential. and has great restorative properties, but the other one too is to humanize clock time, right, and to give it these these cycles that you so eloquently described, Ronald. You know, when you mentioned Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, though, again here here for young people, Valentine's Day as of late is seemingly with a loneliness crisis, bringing more pain than joy. And I, I think that's a true statement for young people. And Mother's Day, of course, the founder of Mother's Day here in the States, you know, renounced it even before she died because <laughs> it had already become so crazily commercialized, you know. But it's, it's kind of, I offer those insights, you know, and turn it back to Ronald you know, because I think this is the hub of the conversation. If we can get some of this down, uh, I was very appreciative of what you said about these festivals surrounding humanity. We do need that. Well, let's call that progress. You could have this kind of Tolkienite nostalgia, which is different from memory to go back to only the agricultural one. And I, I can kind of lean towards nostalgia myself in some sense. But um, what you're saying is so valuable. Say more. You know, what does some of this make you think?
2: I I can't say I ever feel nostalgic about the past myself, uh, largely because I have to live with it daily. Uh, People quite understandably uh, remark on the way in which uh, historians tend always to view the past through the lens of the present, Uh, and that's absolutely correct. But there's a less noticed, equally powerful, countervailing current which is that we spend so much time in the past that uh, we tend instinctually to see whole bits of the present uh, through its lens uh, in trivial ways. Like when I was studying the spread of uh, early modern Western colonial empires like the Portuguese in search of spices, I began putting nutmeg uh, and uh, cayenne into my food each evening. Uh, but i one of my working partners at the moment is Oliver Cromwell, the general and statesman who ran Britain in the sixteen fifties and walking to work every morning. I generally find Cromwell in pace with me, and I find myself explaining sights to him and, uh, trying to explain how the modern world work he He has most trouble with joggers <laughs> <laughs> and the uh the second thing is the sheer number of different churches which delights him and then the realisation that most of them are now deconsecrated and turned to other purpose which <laughs> upsets him deeply So uh, we, we live half in the past in my kind of job as well. It's too much alive for us uh, for nostalgia really to be a sentiment uh, In many ways uh, trying to shake it off is uh, a way to a healthy world Yeah, I feel Especially.
0: the a way since they spend so much time in 17th century English poetry <laughs> I you know my 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 companions along this path are Henry Vaughn and and uh, Robert Herrick I have one to be serious with and one to to drink beer with that's <laughs> true. yeah uh, so you now it's interesting now I have uh, this is totally personal so When I was a young Waldorf team 30 years ago, I couldn't make enough money to live on a Waldorf salary. So I also had uh, a job as a gardener and landscape designer. So I worked a lot of wealthy people's gardens. And one of my my, uh, clients was it was a family of neo-pagan, and I didn't know when I took the job. But I would it was really—I was a good flower gardener. They had a gorgeous garden, and I brought it to life. And I remember her telling me, "Michael, you're you're more pagan than anybody I know," and uh, which I took as a great compliment. And sure. right around that same time, so a couple of years later, uh, maybe this—no, maybe that that same year, my wife and I were invited to uh, this. It was called a summer greeting ritual which was in Ann Arbor. So it was a lot of Ann Arbor University of Michigan types. And the story was that there was this community from from England who had escaped to Canada. They were kind of a a pagan community that had maintained their their traditions going back to before the early modern period. And that, um, so they brought this ritual to Canada and they wanted to spread it around to other people. And so the story was, they gave it to somehow. I got to this this guy I knew, and they invited us. And so what my wife and I went. She was uh, she was pregnant and very. I mean, she was only five months pregnant, but she looked like she was eleven months. Was so cute. And uh, so we were invited to this thing, and I was given the role of the fool. And there was a lord and the lady, and so there was a, kind of a ritual that I don't recall too much of. Um, there was festivity, and then it ended with a game of hide and seek where all the the men had to try to catch the lady and the women had to try to catch the Lord. Well, my wife could barely run. So she she just sat down. And of course, the Lord walked right up to her practically. She grabbed him and I (laughs) caught the lady. And the, the idea was that, Whoever catches the Lord and Lady will be next year's Lord. Of course, I had a falling out with those people. We weren't invited back. So as far as I'm concerned. We're Mike had a falling people. out
1: with people? Surprise, oh, surprise.
0: Yes. I, yeah, I know. Yeah, so we I thought we were Lord and Lady Emeritus. Now, <laughs> so we're, we're Lord and Lady for life, right? Um, but my question is, does that sound plausible to you? I mean, that—that that was it actually something that was smuggled out of England? Well... I haven't
2: seen any evidence to weigh up, so I can't provide uh, anything like a professional answer. Right. Uh, what you're describing, Lord, Lady, Love Chase, Fool, sounds very late Victorian Edwardian, uh, right which is. Here. Which is actually what most modern paganism seems like and sounds like. It's not a pejorative comment. It's uh, one reason why it's so well suited to the modern world. It takes ancient ideas and filters them through modern needs, including those of the birth of modernity in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. It it doesn't sound at all pre-modern. Yeah, but. Without seeing any evidence, I can't pronounce definitively on it, and I don't reject anything out of hand if I haven't seen the evidence for or against.
0: That, well, at the time, I I, I, I I probably believed it, but over the years, I start, when I started to think about it, I said, I bet somebody... <laughs> but I don't know either, right? <laughs> There's no way to tell.
2: Well, I, I've made your journey that uh, when I was a boy, which was the 1950s, 1960s, the... Prevailing scholarly orthodoxy really was that uh, huge amounts of pagan belief, uh, pagan loyalties, uh, pagan ideas and images had survived far into the Christian period and in many ways made popular culture in particular through the medieval early modern periods still essentially pagan with this veneer of Christianity over the top. And I I believe that along with everybody else. I believe that the people persecuted as witches in early modern Europe were practitioners of a surviving pagan religion. And then along came the 60s and 70s with a wholesale re-evaluation of received 19th, early 20th century wisdom, creating uh, a range of modern liberal and uh, questioning movements and uh, subculture. And uh, these ideas were examined and, and found to rest on faulty evidence. I think in many ways my own relationship with this process is that coming in towards the end of the debunking, demolishing, revisionist wave I, I have been trying to see what we can rebuild out of the ruins, the the real picture of the past we can find, but also an explanation for why people really wanted to believe this stuff between about 1880 and 1900, and what
1: purpose it plays in our lives. Let me let me ask a question that it m- might be hard to formulate, and I think I might be doing a disservice to you, Ronald, and to any listeners. But it's a sense of um. You know, to say for maybe the last six months, I've been taking a deep dive into William Blake is to say I've I've spent one minute doing it, it seems to me, you know, that I've been reading a lot and reading a lot about him. And I still feel that the more I know, the less I know. But, you know, from what I've gathered, you you have a sense, um, you know, that I want to say that, you know, there's one sense of looking at paganism. That could see, you know, that if, if nature has a feminine kind of identity in some sense, that some of paganism is almost like a going back to the womb, right? You know, that Freud might talk about this oceanic oneness um, and that, you know, William Blake, his use of the word vision you know, and put in conversation with like St. Paul talking about the, you know, the restoration through man of nature that, you know, that um, even Blake in the hands of a great literary critic, Northrop Fry, you know, Northrop Fry will kind of extrapolate that break was very different, you know, from the romantics, you know, what, what Wordsworth was trying to do, you know, so to, to, to draw with too big of a brushstroke. You know, we have two v- versions of the world where, you know, a man comes out of the womb or a human comes out of the womb. And I can see it with young people, whether it's through uh, intoxication or certain view- forms of sexuality. You know, we're trying to rec- recreate this oceanic oneness. And paganism has some truck with that type of sensibility we have. Whether we've achieved it or not, there's a claim made for kind of the Christian dispensation uh, that we can... We can return to that oneness with no loss of individuality. In fact, the opposite, that we find that the more Ronald Hutton becomes that unique Ronald Hutton. And I'm remembering when I say this, Ronald, your first statement, how that, you know, all of a sudden you could use middle age as like to pursue who you were and this move to Bristol. And I was laughing and just took such joy when you said that. But um, could you comment on that a little bit, like how where paganism might be susceptible to those critiques, or maybe I'm out to lunch, or maybe there's two strands within paganism. But, um, you know, at a time like this, an anxious time, people do want to do all these activities, drugs, pornography, that sink them, or or the crowd formations we see in politics. A community, in my sense, is, you know, a universe is apart from a crowd. Um the, 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 the restoration of oneness at the higher level where Mike Martin and, and all his, you know, shining individuality, it becomes so comfortable with others, you know, that we have that yearning too. Uh, can you comment on this, you know, and the role paganism and neo-paganism might play in this, or if, if you're very familiar, you're so brilliant with William Blake, you know, what you see in, in his contribution. I think Blake's,
2: I think he is brilliant. I think he's important, I also think he's very unusual. He's out on a limb. Uh, he is, he, if you're going to put him in a category, it's that of a particular type of 17th, 18th, early 19th century visionary Christian. Mm. And indeed, he's part of a community, self-consciously, that feeds into the radical, the political radical of the 1790s, 1800s, With the broader question of the role of pagan in this, Like most kinds of religion, paganism is extraordinarily malleable in its actual social and political implication. Uh, After all, uh, Christianity can indeed plausibly be used to underpin most political systems from theocratic and monarchical despotism to revolutionary republicanism. And if you walk into a Roman Catholic church, and a Quaker meeting house, you can hardly believe that you're encountering the same category of religion. So, paganism also is susceptible to these remodelings. Uh, if you take uh, a, an aspect of paganism like its sacralization of sex, its, re- its treatment of human sexuality as something that is a divine gift, good and positive and sacred. That can actually take a person in diametrically opposed positions or in right. diametrically right. opposed directions. Uh, it's If you sacralize sex, it can be taken as something so important. You have to be really careful about with whom you do it. And under consecrated conditions like a commitment for life. Or alternatively to others, the sacralization of sex could be an incentive to enjoy it with as many partners as possible without any sense of restriction. And I've seen both effects in people who've equally correctly used the term pagan of themselves. And paganism can lend itself to a far libertarian and liberal political ethos of individual choice and human rights, or it can be linked to a particularly toxic kind of racist, embedded nationalism, organically related to race, the land, the tribe. So I I think that there's there's no one implication for any of the the undoubted identifiable core features of paganism uh it, rather like uh shades of paint you you can spread them on entirely different surfaces to create
1: entirely different effects what's your thought on this michael
0: um no i i, I like i want to sit with that that's, yeah that's,
1: yeah i think I, the um, i think it's accurate i mean i
0: think it's it's a it's a good insight and i think it's valuable to bring that attention
1: yeah and i wonder i can add another layer to this and say that again a claim made for maybe Uh, what are we going to call it? The Judeo-Christian dispensation, you know, is the unique role of history. You know, we might say, again, if we're going to use the womb, we could look at the Garden of Eden as a womb metaphor. And it seems to me, you read the book of Genesis and he of course wants to go back to the womb as any baby does, you know, but there's a cherub there and, you know, uh, and says, you know, there's no way you're going to have to reach that union again at a higher level. Which, you know, in my understanding of, or at least my hope and let me just say, I'm just this is hope. It's not a claim of triumphalism, but at this historical dimension to the Christian peace is that, you know, I hope we're seeing with more clarity, that the way Christianity could be used, you're saying, and I think you're right, you know paganism could go either way. My prayer for like you know, uh, the Christian church is that we saw those things, and now the one direction is becoming totally clear. That it's the right one. You know, and I tend to think a lot of the themes are there articulated by William Blake, that it is about the liberty, the sons and daughters of the children of God. And it is about, you know, of the two forms of oneness, the oceanic oneness, where we reduce Ronald's Ronaldness to fit into something like a crowd, or we heighten it. So we find the ultimate community symbolized by the Trinity, three blindingly unique persons. In a community that makes the womb almost seem alienating. Does this historical dimension that I'm trying to mention, is that you know, how would you how would you put this into the conversation? And again, I want to make sure I'm not trying to sound triumphalistic.
2: I, I think you're making a perfectly good argument. Uh, I think that Christianity, like the like any religion of the book, is saddled with history in a way that other kinds of religion are not. In other words, it's constantly referring to texts, which are themselves written in what is now, in each case, the quite remote past. So yes, there's a, if you have scriptures, then history is going to be embedded in what you do. But I, I also think that along with all the other challenges in the old-fashioned sense of the word that modernity or late modernity are facing is that of adapting inexorably into pluralist societies, societies that are multi-ethnic, multicultural and multi-faith. Uh, and there is no doubt that some religions have more of a problem with that than others. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that religions which are based upon supremacist claims of monopoly uh, cannot adapt to pluralism. They do it all the time, they do it in front of my eyes. But there is always a problem of how you deal with your fundamentalists built into that. And you read the Koran, you read the Bible, Hebrew uh, and Christian. And there there are quite a few passages in all three of those great books, uh, which do seem to establish that there is a single right faith. And uh, the rest are, to put it politely, very problematic. (laughs) And so, you know, there there are real problems built into certain kinds of very powerful, very traditional, and very prevalent religion when adapting to a pluralist modern or postmodern society. That uh, ironically, some more primitive kinds of religion. Uh, which never got integrated with state system to the same extent uh, don't have to reckon but i oh, yeah. i say this in many ways to extenuate fundamentalism and that it's so easy if you're if you're a well-meaning liberal, as I think each one of us is, an old-fashioned small L meaning of the word, uh, a willingness to recognize validity in other points of view, that uh, fundamentalists are actually following texts which can be read as unequivocally intolerant in the traditional writings of uh, Judaism, Christianity uh, and Islam.
1: And yeah, What I heard and, you say it's brilliant is the you know when you were twining how like sexuality could be done one of two ways. What I heard yeah. you just saying is the text, which could be liberating, can also be so highly enslaving. Yes. Yeah,
0: and and I, and I, what I, so what I've noticed um, in the students I've had or people I've known, course of history, who uh, or course of my history, who have been inclined toward say neo paganism esoteric or occult direction, it seems to me that. Uh, and I also you know, I've been teaching college for 30 years now 20 years um 25 is that uh they they get attracted to because they don't the ones I I I know uh they've they become attracted in those directions because they don't feel fed in the tradition in which they were born they don't feel nourished there and so they're they're looking for an experience of the sacred in some way that that that's meaningful to them and and Uh, I think Jordan Peterson we talked about a couple weeks ago a lot of the attraction toward him is because is that I think he gives young men who have not had uh, an experience of the sacred or uh, a mythic understanding of the world give them gives them something to, to, to to start with and I and I and I see it with my students I mean they're they're there are a lot of uh, 22-year-old nihilists out there. You know, it's really hard. And what I noticed this last semester I've talked about before when I taught this course on romantics in fact, the name of the course was Love and Um, and how after what they've been through for the last two years with taught in masks and what have you, that they felt, man, we weren't wearing masks in that semester, and they felt liberated, and they felt that they could tell me, you know, you know we're committed to this. You know we love this this class because these poets are saying something to us about that life means something. You know, and one of the one of the women did a paper on Romanticism and uh, Thomas Hardy's Far from the Madding Crowd, which is kind of a you know a a late Romantic. It's a critique of Romanticism while while being a celebration of it at the same time. With a beautifully a very connected rem- to the agricultural yeah. year, right? and And but they they were, what was interesting to them is that it gave them something to think about that was meaningful. and it wasn't just that, but they they said a couple of them said that what they learned from the last two years is that so-called success and politics and all these other things are worthless if you don't have something that's meaningful in your life and love is meaningful or. For other people, it's you know, and love is meaningful, but also this connection to creation, which I, which so many of my neo pagan brothers and sisters uh, have uh, validated, validated, you know, because um, it 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 brings them back into a relationship with something that's sacred and real, and, and I think this so for me, you know neo paganism is a lot to teach christianity right now because basically a lot of neo pagans are just doing old you know an earlier form of christianity without christianity right and so it, so i i'm encouraged by that and like we mentioned john michael greer earlier i think he's a great example of this right um so i think it gives me hope just like your books give me hope too um so so where where i'm heading here is so you can tell that um what you've written has been part of what has imparted me to my life. My question is, is what is has is, is it done to yours? Uh, it's enabled me to be incredibly self-indulgent.
2: <laughs> uh, in that I've been able to spend a paid career uh, just reading about and writing about stuff that I've always loved. And, and also unlike a lot of my academic colleagues who are superlative writers, but still hate writing. Uh, For me, it's a therapy. It's what I do instead of yoga uh, or basket weaving or Aikido. Uh, Or maybe it's what I do as well as breathing and eating. It's just, it it just comes naturally to me. Uh, I'm never more happy than I am when preparing to write. And and writing, it's it's what I do. Uh, it's just the way my genes are hardwired. But I I think that those those bits of random incidents in the gene do also predispose different needs and therefore to different beliefs. Uh, it may well be that pagans have something to teach Christians. Modern pagans have learned a few useful things from Christians uh, and others as well, but. Different types of people are going to go for one or the other or for alternative faiths. If if you're somebody who is intensely literate, uh intensely inquiring, uh aggressively resistant to forms of authority, uh, incredibly expressively individualistic and quite countercultural, you'll probably be attracted to paganism in its modern forms more than some other kinds of religion. If you're somebody who really enjoys following rule, if you like to work with an established structure of belief and authority, uh, with a strong emphasis on community, and or you're somebody who feels totally trashed by life and really need to rebuild yourself by submitting yourself to a higher power, then paganism is probably the worst possible thing for you. Uh, something like traditional Christianity would be far more amenable and far more positive. And if you're somebody whose idea of heaven on earth is to have a comfortable, spacious house in a suburb uh, with a nice garden where you have uh, a reliable marital partner uh, to whom you're devoted and children who have the same interests as you, beliefs in you, and get along with you and don't want to be bothered by other things. You'll probably be a materialist secular. Uh, (laughs) So... I I think between the spread of uh, the instinctual positions into which uh, the gene pool puts us, the healthiest position is to have uh, spiritual systems which cater for as many different needs as possible. And that's kind of where we're heading. But actually living together is harder than it sounds. <laughs> Certainly. Is. It is indeed. I'll, I'll mention a, a difficulty of mine. Uh, and that is that in my haste to, or always to get through the email, uh, when we set this up, I never asked you about timings other than when I started. And I'm gonna to have to leave quite short because it's getting past uh, four o'clock in the afternoon here on a Friday. And I need to get home to sort some things out before journeying to Wales uh, for the evening, starting my drive in a couple of hours. Oh. So I'll need to wind up quite soon.
1: Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've got that. a question that could bring together Wales and would be short and something I've wanted to ask you because uh, you know Michael Martin, he, uh, he was mentioning, you know, his his uh, heroes, Robert Herrick and Thomas Traherne and others. Um, a name I've probably only mentioned once here, and someday we'll do a full show on it, but with your connection with Wales and the UK, a very prophetic figure for me, um, somebody who's starting to bring together this highest, higher synthesis of pagan and Christian was John Cooper Powis, you know, who wrote, um, I saw your dissertation was on, you know, maybe uh, 15th century Wales, you know, he wrote a great novel Owain Glendower, which has this beautiful opening chapter on St. John's Day as it was celebrated around the Trappist Monastery, and it would make any young person, one of these anxious young people I mentioned, so longing for that. Are you familiar with his work? What do you think of him?
2: I think that he needs a good editor. <laughs> I, I think he, he writes too much in, in most of them. I think yep. in some of them, like A Glastonbury Romance, It, it works. Uh, The number of characters, and the pace of the book sustains the length, but in others uh, it just rambles too much. There are too many characters, too many things happening at once, and it all goes Uh on a bit too long. Uh, I do like his poetry. I mean, that is concise, yeah. concentrated, very good. So my answer to your question is it depends on which bits of power. Yeah, absolutely. I've
1: tended to do mostly the uh, the nonfiction, his book on Rabelais and a book on Dostoevsky. For some reason, that's yeah. where I don't think they're his best. So accessible and so much is in there, his gems, especially a chapter in his book on Rabelais, on the religion of Rabelais, which might yeah. be the most prophetic distillation and condensation of what a lot of us are talking about now, at least for me. So thanks for that, uh, Professor Hutton.
0: And I have just one little question. What's what's on your festival schedule for r- right now? Well,
2: I've just been through a big one, and that is uh, the kind of beginning of autumn, beginning of harvest celebration here in the UK, the feasts that used to be called Lammas or Lunasar yeah. or gwil uh which is the main summer camp season. Here in the UK, it's when the ground is driest and the weather is most reliably warm. And so I've just been through a tour of different summer camps. Uh, I was invited to speak at each. enabled me to share in the camps activities and uh, re-meet a lot of people. So I did four of them uh, in a couple of weeks. So I've been on the road a lot. And so it's time now for me to uh, step back a bit from major festivals and go for local festivals like Harvest Homes. Uh, We we do good harvest festivals here in the west of England with villages uh, having dances with often uh, rural bands with good folk music. Uh, so, I mean, this is the same across your nation as well. You know, harvest mm-hmm. homes in Idaho uh, with country music uh, are just as good, or, or even infinitely superior to what we can do here in Somerset. Yeah.
0: We'll be doing the same. thing. Actually, we started planning at breakfast. So uh, thank you so much, Ronald, for talking to us. It's been a great pleasure after very all grateful. these years of knowing your work and studying your work to have, to have a, finally have a chance to speak to you. It's been delightful speaking
2: to both of you uh, to have such compassionate, courteous, erudite companions for just over an hour of a Friday afternoon. It's delightful. Thank you
1: very much. Well,
0: thank you. We'll see you again soon.
2: I look forward to it. You can
1: tell. Well, thanks everybody for listening to the regeneration podcast. We will see you next week.